Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring with me, Dr. Bradley Block, where I interview experts in fields in and out of medicine to help physicians and other healthcare practitioners improve in all aspects of their practice, to help them serve their patients, their practice, their specialty, their community, their family, and most of all, themselves better. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, Episode 1, Common Misconceptions About the Affordable Care Act, where I interview Adam Block, PhD, in health policy economics about the Affordable Care Act. We talk about the primary purpose and origin of the Affordable Care Act, and why did the cost of care go up after the Affordable Care Act, and did it actually have anything to do with the ACA? We talk about whether or not employers actually did drop coverage after it came out, and how did employee-sponsored coverage, which is the primary method in which people get health care coverage in the United States, even come about? Why are some states turning down the Medicaid expansion? And why ending the individual mandate may not actually be the end of the Affordable Care Act? One thing that we do discuss very briefly are the 10 essential benefits, but I realized after listening to this interview that we never actually went into them. So I'll just review them right now before our interview with Dr. Block. So the 10 essential benefits, which are 10 benefits which all insurances must have in order to be considered health insurance and be able to sell their services, are ambulatory patient services, so outpatient services, emergency services, hospitalization, maternity and newborn care, mental health and substance abuse disorder services, prescription drugs, rehabilitative services, lab services, preventative and wellness services, and chronic disease management, as well as pediatric services, including oral and vision care. Now, prior to the Affordable Care Act, you didn't necessarily have to have all of these. And one of the things that we discuss is how much this actually did change the cost of care after the Affordable Care Act came out. So without further ado, Dr. Adam Block. Physician's Guide to Doctoring, Episode 1, interviewing Adam Block, PhD. This is not a coincidence that we share the same last name, as we also share the same mother. And father. And father. So he's my brother, but this does not make him an authority on anything, except possibly headlocks and noogies. But he happens to be an authority in the Affordable Care Act, which is what we'll be speaking about today. What each physician should know about the Affordable Care Act, uh, given that it has become an integral part of everyone's practice. It's critical that physicians be as informed as possible without misinformation. So first, Adam, aside from being my brother, what makes you an authority on the Affordable Care Act? So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, currently, I'm an assistant professor of uh, health policy and management at New York Medical College. They have a school of public health, the School of Health Sciences and Practices up in Westchester County, New York. Uh, but before that, I've done a, a few things. Uh, I received my PhD in health economics from Harvard in 2007. And pretty soon after that, uh, I found that people were looking for health economists uh, right at the start of the Affordable Care Act when, uh, right after Barack Obama got elected president, uh, on Capitol Hill. And uh, I took a job. I had a couple of job offers, one with the Congressional Budget Office, but I took a job with the Joint Committee on Taxation. And I uh, didn't really think that tax had much to do with healthcare, but I um, 
ended up uh, ended up working there, uh, drafting legislation. And soon after that, uh, after the Affordable Care Act passed, I went and worked for CMS, where I wrote regulations on the Affordable Care Act. Great. So um, just give us a summary of the Affordable Care Act. It is an unbelievably complicated piece of legislature. Everyone talks about how many pages long it is. But see what you can do to just summarize it in five minutes or less. Sure. So, so it's 2,500 so 2, pages long. Um, I have read, uh, I would say, about half of them. I've contributed to the writing uh, a decent portion of, the, of them, certainly not 1,200 pages. But um, what the Affordable Care Act really does is it is legislation that is designed to expand coverage, and that is it. That is its primary function is that uh, Clinton Care came around in 1992, and what they decided to do, and the primary reason that Clinton Care failed, was that they tried to remake the whole healthcare system. They tried to put everybody in HMOs, they were gonna have these HMOs compete against each other, and they were gonna change healthcare for everybody. However, the Affordable Care Act said, well, there's a reason that this failed, and people were afraid of losing their healthcare coverage and get, uh, the coverage that they have that they liked, and so uh, when Obama got elected president, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, we are not going to change the employer-sponsored market at all. We're going to try to fill in the cracks because there are 15% of the overall um, populace that is without health insurance coverage. And so we're going to try to cover them. And the way that they tried to cover them was with two primary expansions. One was a large expansion of Medicaid. Um, and so if you live in a blue state, California, New York, the expansion of Medicaid was moderate. But if you live in a red state and that red state has actually expanded Medicaid, the expansion was very, very large uh, because many of those states did not have expansive Medicaid coverage. And the other thing that it did was it created exchanges. The exchanges are the individual market and it created some market rules around it and it made healthcare coverage affordable for people like my barber. My barber makes $45,000 a year. He's an independent businessman, does not want to go onto Medicaid, but uh, he has diabetes and would not be able to afford healthcare coverage if pre-existing conditions were included because it would cost him $1,500 a month, and that's just impossible for someone that makes $45,000 a year. So for anyone who knows, Adam knows that part of the reason his barber doesn't make much is because he doesn't visit him often enough. My hair looks amazing, yeah. especially relative to yours. There's a reason this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my barber would be able to get health, is now able to health, uh, get health insurance coverage through the Affordable Care Act um, because even though he has pre-existing conditions, everybody is treated exactly the same. And even though um, even though he only makes forty five thousand dollars a year, and uh, coverage might cost him five or six hundred dollars a year. Uh, he will get a uh, five or six hundred dollars a month. Sorry, uh, he will get uh, a uh, coverage. He'll get a tax credit of a couple of hundred dollars, maybe a hundred or two hundred dollars, to help him subsidize coverage. That's pretty much it. That was really what the heart of the Affordable Care Act was. There was a third principle that they went in with, um, and this is important. Maybe not from a physician's perspective, but from a government um, perspective, which was that it was very important to uh, Obama that it be budget neutral. And what that basically means is that the Affordable Care Act would not add to the deficit. So therefore, if you have all of these 
additional expenditures, more people getting paid for by Medicaid, that's an additional budget expenditure, more people going on uh, getting tax credits, that's an additional expenditure. Uh, basically, you have to increase taxes or decrease spending elsewhere in order to pay for that. Uh, and I just want to contrast that with the tax cut, uh, the tax cut of uh, 20, 2017 Act. And basically, there was no, that was a one point five one to $1.5 trillion expenditure uh, where it was not covered. So it was important in the Affordable Care Act for it to be budget neutral. So budget neutral with regard to taxes, um, some of the issue that physicians and patients both have with the Affordable Care Act is that the name ends up being rather ironic to many people because after the Affordable Care Act, the cost of their insurance went up considerably. And so uh, part of that might be what we use to define insurance. Part of that is that with a pre-existing condition, you can now join the insurance roles and that needs to get paid for somehow. Part of that is uh, the 10 essential benefits. So I definitely want you to speak to that. Um, and so so what are the, some of the reasons that it may have been budget neutral to the taxes, but not budget neutral to the, to the insured? Sure. So there are a few people. So for the vast majority of people, your insurance premiums did not go up. Right. If you're in employer-sponsored coverage, there was nothing that changed about your coverage to make your premiums go up. Now, premiums go up every year. They go up. That's why we have, uh, right. That that's why we have medical expenditures that go up by four or five percent every year. So that's not due just because that continued to happen under the Affordable Care Act does not mean it was as a caused by the Affordable Care Act. So employer-sponsored coverage did not really go up in terms of premiums uh, as a result of the Affordable Care Act. There were really no changes to it. There are there was a very small chunk of people for whom tax uh, premiums went up for, and if you were in a in the individual market and in a good risk pool, all of a sudden those risk pools all got merged together, and so the good preferred rate that you had may have gone away because you now had to cross subsidize sicker people than yourself. Um, if you lived in a state like California or another state that had uh, a really broad range of premiums where young people paid way less than older people, that amount shrank. So your premiums might have gone up. So for those subsets of the population, and you were wealthy enough that you did not qualify for a tax credit, it's possible that your premiums get went up. But for the rest of the world, uh, premiums didn't really change or certainly didn't change as a result of the Affordable Care Act. Well, you hear stories about people that had insurance beforehand that may not have had the benefits that they have now because of the 10. First, can we talk about the 10 essential benefits? What what are they? Sure. So this is an area of my expertise. I wrote the regulation on the 10 essential benefits. Um, and basically what it was is it was geared to be state by state and look very similar to what a small group or individual market plan at the time looked like. So the 10 essential benefits were very similar to what was a standard plan being offered on the market at that time. So it was based on what was the standard of most plans at the time. This wasn't a departure from what was typical for most plans. If if you exactly. did not have these benefits, then you were the outlier. That's exactly right. And it, and it was designed to prevent the outliers from getting way fewer benefits. An example of uh, an, an essential benefit is maternity coverage. And I know that uh, in Colorado, maternity coverage was not mandated benefit. So you could buy a policy without maternity coverage. 
Um, and so all of a sudden now you had to buy a policy with maternity coverage, but that does that most people were buying those policies anyway. The preponderance of coverage had that benefit attached to it. It just prevented you from basically opting out of that. So it didn't allow some of the insurances to game the system and make it seem like they were giving a comparable product. Yeah. Whereas they weren't. That's a, that's exactly right. And and uh, you know and what what you'll see is that the essential health benefits, which you know I'm, I'm very proud to have done work on, but I think it is a lot uh, much ado about nothing. Okay. And the reason I say that is because the variation in benefits that have to be covered is really pretty narrow. You can identify a couple of points, but I just um, put out a, a health affairs blog post in January. And basically what that found was that the difference between the current state of the essential health benefits and Trump proposals that many people were crying, the sky is falling and they're going to reduce our benefits to nothing. The total premium reduction as a result of these proposals was about 1.2%. So if you're losing 1.2% of premium, that means you're only losing 1.2% of benefits. That is not that much. So... I think it's 1.2%. Uh, it's it's really uh, much ado about nothing when it comes to the essential health benefits. So what about the lifetime limit, right? Previously, healthcare was one of the most, if not the most common reason for someone to go bankrupt in the United States, right? Yeah. Do you know where that came from? Do you know where that information came from? Where? So uh, Professor Elizabeth Warren, now Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, built her career on bankruptcy law. And one of the big things that she found was that 50% of the bankruptcies were um, are related to healthcare bankruptcies. So that was uh, Professor Elizabeth Warren that, that came so up with those statistics. Now there's this provision in the Affordable Care Act that says that uh, you can't have a lifetime, lifetime limit on the amount that the insurance will pay. So if you end up for months in the intensive care unit, you have some exotic form of cancer and the treatment is exorbitantly expensive, you can't run out of your limit on how much they will pay. They must continue to pay. Uh, the plan must continue the, to pay. Yeah. So who is really paying for that anyway? So let's, I mean, let's take this. So you're, you know, as a physician, let's, let's walk through how this would really happen. So first of all, if you had, and you know, a common cap, uh, and I worked on this, a common cap was $250,000 on a, on a plan. And when I say common, I mean, of the crappiest plans that did this horrible thing, it was $250,000. It was not a common thing in the grand scheme of things. But let's walk through what would happen. Now, number one, and that's what would you have to have to spend $250,000 on healthcare? In how much time? Well, I mean, a lot of these were related to annual limits. I've heard lifetime limits, but not for a plan. Lifetime limits were specific to like a, a disease state. But let's say, let's talk about it, you know, just, just for as a thought experiment, let's talk about it as a, as a year. So 200, what would you have to have to, now it happens, $250,000. It absolutely happens. I've seen tons of data on this, but what would you have to have? I would think anything that lands you in the intensive care unit for a considerable period of time. Sure. So extremely severe trauma, maybe cancer, NICU, um, any, anything else that, that might come to, might come to mind? I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor, so there's not much with us that uh, that ends up unless the patient's in palliative care. Most of the time, if you have some uh, oncologic problem, you end up with a surgery in the surgical ICU, and then hopefully from there, 
you're improving, you're out of the ICU and you're-, you're I was at your medical school graduation, something outside of ENT. I know it's not going to be something related to ENT. So oncology, NICU, maybe tra- transplant, right? Um, so yeah. So So those are a couple of the things. So let's say you've got, right? Let's say you are- have a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars. Transplant's a great example. Yeah. Let's okay. go with that. So yeah. So let's go with transplant. So you have a transplant, a liver transplant, and it costs three hundred thousand dollars. Now, are you working? You're not working, right? So you don't have commercial insurance. You stopped working and you somehow retained your individual market plan, right? So your individual market plan says, I'm not paying anymore. You hit your cap. So then what happens? Well, you probably don't have that much money, so maybe they drain your wallet. Maybe, maybe they, does the hospital kick you out? No, no, right? No, no hospital that you've worked in would kick you out if you, no. right? No, and and I think that's pretty standard. I don't think hospitals kick you out, uh, you know, in the United States there as a result. Of this. Must be a law against that. Uh, you'd be surprised how recent some of these laws against that stuff uh, happen, but yes, there's there's a law against it. Plus, there's the liability that they do something like that, they end up in the newspapers, you end up with bad press, and nobody's PR department wants anything to do with that. So either way, they keep you in the hospital, nobody's kicking you out, right. but at the same time, they're not bankrolling you. Right. So they and they don't want to be bankrolling you. So what do they do? Well, they try to drain your right. So maybe they'll bill you until you run out of money, and maybe. But in reality, you're probably going to get put onto Medicaid relatively quickly. And so the plan, so the hospital is then going to be billing Medicaid. So the government is paying for it anyway. Is the point right? But from the individual perspective, right? You've spent a considerable time working, accumulating savings. And then only to get a devastating illness and have a lifetime of savings wiped out. Sure. And so from a government perspective, from their entire budget, this one individual's problem, you know, uh, whether they pay for it or not. But, but to the individual, if you have to have your lifetime savings get wiped out in order to qualify for Medicaid and then to have it continue to be paid for, that's obviously devastating. Right. But I'm not saying that it's a, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to have this provision in any way. I, I certainly don't believe that. I think it's a great thing to have. But what I'm saying is that the plans were basically jump, you know, living off of the back of Medicaid. Yeah. So we were, what you're saying is that was whether we pay for it in terms of our individual plans, premium. having these lifetime limits or we pay for it in terms of those patients eventually getting onto Medicaid and then Medicaid paying for the rest of it. We're either paying for it in terms of our premiums or we're paying for it in terms of our taxes, but either way, we're paying for it. It just feels different when we're paying for it in terms of our monthly premiums than if we pay for it in terms of this nebulous tax money that could be going to repair a road or could be paying for somebody's NICU stay. Yes, that's exactly right. So it just feels different. It's kind of like um, giving someone $5 and then taking it back versus never giving them anything to begin with. It feels different, but it's ultimately a zero-sum game. Yes. It's ultimately getting paid for by Medicaid in, in the vast majority of those cases where people hit up on the lifetime limit. Yeah. Okay. And so the amount that we're talking about, how much you have to drain from that individual's wealth versus what the cost ultimately ends up being to Medicaid to begin with is ends up not being that different just because of the cost of these stays versus what people tend to have in their savings. Right. It's the first time I've ever convinced you of anything. Yeah. Um, 
well, the rest of this is going to take a little more convincing. So, so there are, I think part of what you do in some of your talks is you dispel misconceptions about the Affordable Care Act. So when you're speaking to people about the Affordable Care Act, what are some of the more common misconceptions about it? Sure. So some of the more common misconceptions, the first is, uh, well, we could talk about death panels. Um, oh, that's, uh, yeah, that is, that is a hot button issue. Um, so I could tell you the true source of where death panels came from. Um, so I think I know. I think I know the answer to this. And I think what it is is incentivizing primary care physicians to have a conversation with the patients about end-of-life care. If you want to talk to your patient about end-of-life care, you're not actually diagnosing a condition. You're not actually treating a condition. So there's no CPT code. So there's no ICD-9 code. So there's no way, as a primary care physician, to get paid for this very difficult conversation. Who told so you that? is it... This is... So it's is, common knowledge. Is that, is that, no, that's exactly right. That's no, exactly it's, right. It's not, it's, I don't think it's common knowledge. I think uh, I'm just it, a, a particularly smart guy you, and, uh, and, and well-read and, and well-informed might be from sitting at, uh, at the dinner table with, uh, someone who was involved in this. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to give you too much credit, but, but how far, how far off the mark is that? That was a hundred percent correct. And the only thing that I'll add is that the person that sponsored the amendment was Republican Chuck Grassley. So it you know it became political it became a political football that people were saying you know there are these death panels in it but nobody really knew what the death panels was so it turns out what the death panels are is payment of a CPT code for an end of life care visit uh, for P, uh, for primary care physicians as soon as you enter into Medicare so very far from what a death panel actually is um, so a couple of the myths versus facts um, you know first is. You know, on the Democrat side, oh, Obamacare is a panacea. It's going to lower the cost of care for everybody. Not true. Not the goal. Was not targeted to be the goal and succeeded in not lowering the cost of care, meaning that Obamacare did not lower the cost of care. It was not meant to, and it did not do that. Well, wasn't there one part of it where there was a limit on the amount that health insurances could make? Like they couldn't, they couldn't earn over a certain percent. And so if you cap their ability to make money and they have to give that back to their um, patients, then if they're making less of a profit, then it costs less money. Isn't that part of the Affordable Care Act? Yeah. So there was a cap on the medical loss ratio of 80% in the individual market and uh, 85% in the small group market. What the medical loss ratio is, if you don't find it too boring, is the portion of the premium. If you pay $1,000 a premium, if you have an 80% medical loss ratio, what that means is that $800 of it has to go to doctors and $200 of that $1,000 premium stays with the insurance company. Either Let's just as, be clear. 80% does not go to doctors. 80% goes to care. That's true. 80% goes to care. I think the, and the breakdowns that I see is something like, uh, about, uh, of, of that $80, maybe $40 will go to hospitals. Maybe 25 will go to doctors and maybe 15 will go to some combination of long-term care, pharmaceuticals and medical devices. All right. Well, this is actually We've talked about this before. This is going to be a different conversation that we have for another episode. So stay tuned. This is going to be the economics of healthcare in America. So that's a good segue into a later talk. Okay. So uh, did that actually, did that provision change things? Wasn't that already the case in some states? Or did that actually lead to some savings for patients? Didn't change things. Wasn't the wasn't uh, there in any states before this, to my knowledge. 
However, um, and the interesting thing is, and some of you may have received this, is a, a check from your insurance company in the year 2014 when it, uh, when it first went into effect. People actually got checks back from their companies. Now, I don't know anybody that's gotten a check recently, and I actually just saw an article on this. Why don't people have checks anymore? Basically, insurers either got a little better at pricing or more likely they were able to cover up any sort of profits that they had that were in excess of this. Because in reality, what happened was they had some lines of business, some HMOs that were doing really well that they might be, right? And they had a year where nobody went to the doctor, there were no transplants, and they might be taking a huge profit in that year from that one. And others where they were doing really badly, right? Where they were losing money. And uh, basically that couldn't happen anymore. So everybody, everyone, they had to increase the premiums on everybody a little bit um, so that they would prevent themselves from giving the money uh, back. So one of the other myths versus facts are uh, one concern that economists had is that Obamacare would cause employers to drop coverage. And uh, by dropping coverage, what that means is that all of a sudden, if there's this big benefit, right, you get these tax credits to people earning, uh, families of four earning less than $100,000 a year, they could potentially, uh, employers could say, you know what, why am I offering you coverage if you can just get it in the exchanges? I'm going to drop coverage and you're going to be better off. I'll give you a little bit of a raise and you'll get those big tax credits. This is what economists that worked for the Obama administration were terrified of. However, the data shows that uh, there were uh, the, basically the same number of the same portion of the population that was employed, had employer sponsored coverage before the Affordable Care Act and after the Affordable Care Act, there was really no change. So what economists were afraid of, which is that employers would just drop coverage and dump everybody into the exchanges and then the government would have to pay these tax credits. That didn't happen. Well, wasn't there a minimum number of employees that you had to have in order to be required? And then some people or some companies ended up taking on more people as freelance and then not as full-time employees, so they didn't have to pay for their health benefits. Wasn't there some, weren't there some complicating factors in there? I remember it being in the news. I don't know the statistical significance of it, because if you hear a story of something terrible happening, uh, it, it tends to stick in your mind, but it might only be one person one time. You know, what was the significance of, of maneuvers like that? So, yeah, there's an employer mandate. And the employer, what the employer mandate says is that if you are an employer with 50 or more employees, uh, that you have to offer coverage. And if you don't offer coverage, you have to pay a $2,000 fine for every one of your employees, uh, for every one of your employees. Now, it, it's a little more complicated than that. So I'm overgeneralizing it a little bit. But that was basically to make sure that employers didn't drop coverage. But still, even if they had to pay that, they might be better off because I know what you, you, you know what your, you pay in health insurance coverage for all of your employees. And I know what, you know, a standard premium rate for a family of four is here. It's something like $12,000 uh, and can range up as high to $20,000 in New York City. So $2,000 all of a sudden seems like a drop in the bucket compared to that. So they still may have made that same economic decision, uh, but they didn't. The point is that they didn't. We have tons of economic evidence now that employers did not drop coverage as a, as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And there was a big concern that they would, that this would fundamentally change what healthcare in America looked like from being an employer-sponsored coverage country 
to being an individual market country, and it did not do that. But you said earlier that that was the goal of Clinton Care, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Why were they so terrified of it? Uh, I think that that's not what the objective of the Affordable Care Act was, just because it was the goal of Clinton Care. And now a lot of the same people that worked on Clinton Care in their 30s then worked on the Affordable Care Act in their 50s. Um, so a lot of these people were, you know, were the same people. Um, but I think they learned from the experience and they wanted to make uh, something that worked. And they recognized that people had a legitimate concern about moving into the um, about moving away from employer sponsored coverage. And there are a lot of benefits of being on employer sponsored coverage, a ton. The most important is the tax benefit, right? Anything that you pay in premium through your employer basically is tax protected. You don't pay tax on it. And whereas wages you do pay. And if you buy in the individual market, you do pay tax on it. So if I were to get, right, if I'm in a 30% tax bracket, I get $100 in wages. If I buy health insurance through my employer, I get $100 worth of health insurance. If I take that in wages, I get $70 because I'm losing 30%. And if I go buy on the individual market, I have to get taxed on it. I get $70 and I go spend that $70 on individual market health care. And the reason that this was done is because otherwise it wouldn't be budget neutral? No, no, no. It, it has always been like that, and nothing has changed that. Fact. Then why? That seems to me fundamentally unfair. If when I pay for my own health insurance and my employee's health insurance, that is paid by the business with pre-tax dollars, but an individual freelancer has to pay with post-tax tax dollars, that seems to me fundamentally unfair. And it is. So yes. So that is, I would is going to segue into another question, which is one of the more controversial parts of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. This and, and it's been, I think, discussed in this administration, um, the taxability of, of health insurance versus non-taxable. So why, why is that the case? So that's historic. Um, so what happened in World War II was that there were not all the all of our boys went off to, like our grandfather went yeah. off to fight in World War II. And uh, there were not enough. And not only that, all of the factories in um, Europe had been bombed out. So there was no place to get guns or any sort of manufactured products. So the U.S. was just churning it out and churning it out and churning it out. And so what did they do? They hired uh, basically the wage rate, right? If you're in economics, well, the wage rate went up and up and up and up and up. And then the wage rate got so high that the federal government said, nope, you can't increase the wage rate anymore. So what did employers do? Employers are savvy. They said, okay, we're going to offer some pretty sweet benefits on the side that are the equivalent of, of wages. And so that's where health insurance really took off in the uh, employer-sponsored coverage. It didn't really exist in employer-sponsored coverage, didn't really exist before the 40s. Um, and, then, um, and then the IRS, in order to enhance this, basically passed a, a a regulation that said that uh, employer-sponsored benefits like this would be tax-deductible, uh, rather tax-exempt. And if you look at it now, the biggest deductions in, um, I'm getting to my tax committee experience, there are two enormous, uh, what we call tax expenditures, basically giant deductions. One is mortgage interest, right? Everybody can deduct the interest that they take on their mortgage, which basically subsidize people to buy bigger houses and subsidizes housing prices. And the other is the exemption of health insurance expenditures. Those are the two biggest things. Now, as a part of the Affordable Care Act, what they talked about 
was capping the uh, tax expenditure on health insurance, saying, okay, if you buy $10,000 worth of health insurance, that's okay. But if you buy $15,000, you're paying tax on the last $5,000 of it. That was a big discussion. And the people that were opposed to that were the people that had high premium states like New York State. In fact, Chuck Schumer was the biggest opponent in the world of this, along with John Kerry, because they live in states where premiums are incredibly expensive. And so their guys, their constituents, us, would have had to be the ones that were paying tax on part of our health care. You mean for the employers? I mean, the employers, but we would have the individuals were always paying taxes on all of it. Sure. Uh, I mean, yes, yes. Individuals were always paying taxes. But remember, individuals in the individual market only pay a very small, like only make up a very small part of the, a very small part of the market. Even today, I think it's something like 25 million, uh, you know, 25 to 35 million people. It's, it's really not very much of the overall market. All right. So I think we're, we're running a little short on time. So just give me one more misconception about the Affordable Care Act. Something, something exciting. Something exciting. We've been okay, mired in you... tax law for a little bit. All right. I'm going to give you my favorite one. So uh, my favorite one is that members of Congress and their staff must be covered by the exchanges. Um, so they made this special provision. And this, this is a part of the fun political game that happens in Washington, D.C., where the Republicans who are opposed to the Affordable Care Act say, if, this, if these exchanges are so great, why don't you get in them? So we're going to propose that every member of Congress and their staff needs to be in it. And normally what the uh, Democrats would do is oppose this. They say, oh, everybody should be in Medicaid. You should all be in Medicare. Whatever it is, they say, you know, if it's good enough for if you if you think this is such a good policy, then you should be in it. And instead, what happened was the um, the majority leader basically said, OK, we'll be in it. I take your I call your bluff. And so now as a result, and it never changed. And as a result, all the members of Congress that get health insurance through Congress are now a part of the D.C. exchange. I think it's 11,000 people. What type of plans were they on prior to this? Uh, They were on FEHBP. So they were on the standard federal government plan, which is known for being a very generous, well-subsidized plan. Uh, there's tons of options. There's maybe six or seven options in every region. So there might be a regional HMO, depending on where you live. Um, there's a Blue Cross Blue Shield option. It's uh, it's a well known to be very generous. So we were talking about how individual plans are paid for with uh, your taxed income and are, and are not tax deductible. And that was something that could certainly use some improvement. Um, are there any other aspects uh, having worked from the inside that you think either were lost due to uh, maybe not enough political capital or just some other aspects of it that could benefit from some improvement? Uh, so, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of complexity in there. The whole cost-sharing reduction um, is, uh, cost-sharing reductions were the thing that Trump said we are no longer funding and 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 legitimately stopped funding. And what these are is, little bonus payments that you get if you are between, let's say, 200% or 150% and 250% of the poverty level. Um, Just to put that in perspective, 100% of the poverty level uh, for a family of four is about $25,000. So these are families of four that are making something like 
forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. And what that does is it reduces these cost sharing reductions are a roundabout way to reduce your deductibles and things like that. And that is a super roundabout way of doing something where they just should have said, okay, if you want to give people in this tax bracket more money, just give them more money, give them better premium. Don't, don't make this two-tiered system where you have multiple types of plans. It adds a whole lot of complexity in there. I also think they could have done a little more standardization of benefits uh, because what we found is that, and there's lots of behavioral economics research on this, is that it's really hard to make choices. It's really hard to make choices. Plans are really complicated. And so if you standardize benefits, people have an easier time of understanding what, um, what they're buying and making a better decision for themselves rather than just getting mired in complexity. So I think that's a, a difference between maybe libertarian and Democrat and Republican. Some people think that if you have the complexity that people should be informed enough to make their own decisions. And at some point, these decisions get too complicated for people to really be able to do enough research to understand the complexity of the decisions. And, and at one point, it, it should just be made not completely for them, but but just simplified. Yeah, I, I certainly have patients that have signed up for the bronze plan where they have low premiums and, and high deductibles. And then every time they go to the doctor, uh, what they thought was a standard visit suddenly becomes a couple of hundred dollars. Um, and and it's not something that they were expecting. and. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, absolutely, I agree that that standardizing them somehow and making them simpler would benefit uh, uh, a lot of people that that I've encountered in, in these situations. And this is where the they become disgruntled with the Affordable Care Act. They say again, the irony of of the term. This isn't this isn't affordable. I, I don't get any of my uh, healthcare paid for until I meet this five thousand dollar deductible. How is this affordable? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the irony of that is those people were uninsured before this. The, 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 right. Like that, that, that's, that's the problem is that they want the world, you know, like that, that a, a person that is in a bronze plan was most likely uninsured prior to the Affordable Care Act. Um, it's not like they, the, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, now they have a $5,000 deductible. If they're probably in a bronze plan, what was the situation that they were in in 2013? Likely they were uninsured and they were never getting coverage. And in reality, People should be budgeting for healthcare expenses that they are likely going to have, like, you know, potentially an ENT visit or primary care visits. It's really the catastrophic coverage that you can't possibly, you can't possibly budget for $100,000 that you get, that you need to pay because you get cancer, right? Nobody can budget for that. And that's what health insurance is for. Health insurance is less for the everyday visits. I don't mean to diminish the fact that, you know, it can cost you know, a couple of hundred dollars to get a visit or to go to the ED. Visit to the ER. The visit yeah, to the ER. $1,500 to the visit. Right. Yeah. I, I don't mean to diminish that fact. That's that's real money. But those are re, those are expenses that a reasonable person can expect to have over the course of a year or five years. Whereas health insurance is really designed to reduce the catastrophic risk that you have if you have a baby that happens to have to go to the NICU and, you know, cost $500,000 or you have a heart attack and you need um, you need bypass surgery and that's going to cost $50,000. So then do you think the Affordable Care Act also has a bit of a PR problem? Because uh, speaking of barbers, I went to a barber who who complained that he went to the doctor and it cost him $200. And he has health insurance. So what's the point of having health insurance if it cost him $200 out of his deductible? His 
I, I then went into the details of, well, actually, exactly what you said. This is if you sure, have he a, was thrilled. If you have a catastrophe, this is going to cover that. But from his perspective, also because um, you can enter the roles now with a pre-existing condition, he can just go without insurance until he gets sick, and so he doesn't have as much of an incentive to. But to he, can, enter he the roles. can't. He, well, he can't. You you can't buy insurance in the middle of the year, so you can only buy insurance during open enrollment, and you basically have to be. You can only buy insurance during open enrollment. So there's ways to game the system a little bit, but he can't game it like. That so then, what happens to someone if they don't have insurance and they have some catastrophic, catastrophic event, and it is just after the open rolls close? So now you have an entire year to wait before you can get insurance. Yeah, all those bad things that used to happen to you when you were uninsured before the Affordable Care Act—they still happen to you. Okay, interesting. So there, there are two things that were in the news. One more recently than the other that I, that I that I want to get to. Um, and, and one of them is that you had these conservative states yep. that were offered the ability to e expand their Medicaid roles, right? They could get a bunch of their constituents on Medicaid with these, uh, federal right. funds yeah. and they declined. Yeah. And Maine's so, getting sued right now. I'm sorry. Maine is getting sued right now. Because they declined to put their... Well, because they, the governor declined to put it on. Then they had a referendum vote in November of 2017. The referendum won, meaning they said that the, the referendum said that they had to expand Medicaid. And the governor did not, has not done it yet or is not intending to do it. I so think... he's basically defying the referendum. So yes, this continues to be a big issue. Now, when the Affordable Care Act was written, none of this was conceived of at all. Not even a little bit. The way that this happened was basically that when the uh, Supreme Court case came around, the Supreme Court case, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius of 2012, when Chief Justice Roberts, who is a um, appointee of George W. Bush, right, a Republican appointee, sided with the four liberal justices and said that the Affordable Care Act should stand and that it shouldn't be struck out of law. And, and that was because of the individual mandate, correct? So that was the individual mandate. Two things came out of it. One is the individual mandate is constitutional. And two is that the state should not be compelled to expand Medicaid. So in the Affordable Care Act, what they said is, if you don't expand Medicaid, we're cutting off all of your federal funding for all of your Medicaid. And basically what the justices said was that, no, you can't do that. The states have their option to do this if they want to or not. And then all of a sudden it became a political football instead of every state having to. Now, it's not exactly aligned with red and blue states because if you're a hospital CEO, you know, what do you, what do you want? You want all of you want all of the Medicaid, of Medicaid dollars. Money. Yeah. You want all of the Medicaid dollars that you can possibly get. So right now in the red states that have not expanded it, the hospital CEOs are like please saying to the governor, please expand it. Because if I have, you know, if I have 20% uninsured or 15% uninsured and I'm paying for that in my hospital with charity care, and all of a sudden there's something that can reduce that. And now Medicaid underpays the hospitals frequently. They don't, you know, they pay them at cost or a little bit below cost. But it's way better than getting nothing. It's better than nothing. Understood. So why, aside from it just being a political incentive, right? This was this was this spent a lot of Obama's political capital, right? It was they they made it very controversial. They being both sides really, and uh, you know there was a lot of spin in both directions. 
I would argue that the spin was primarily on the on the right. Uh, and, you know, and the evidence of that is pretty clear, which is that, right, Governor Romney of Massachusetts, this is basically like Governor Romney of Massachusetts is, you know, not his idea. He took it from, you know, uh, American Enterprise Institute, a Republican think tank from like 20 years before. So this is this is these are, you know, right side ideas that, you know, because Obama came and he, you know, he was Obama and the Democrats espoused them that they became offensive. But, uh, you know, they were relatively, you know, uh, right-leaning ideas on how to expand coverage. Okay, I can appreciate that. Being left-leaning myself, I, I wanted to try to stay as down the middle as I could. So, but- I understand the, that. The, um, for the Republican governors to turn down what is essentially free money, why would they do that? Was there something that they were going to be on the hook for later on if they took this money? Or was this basically turning down free money? Um, it's both. Uh, so they took down, so they did turn down free money, but they would be on the hook for a portion of the Medicaid expansion payments. So from the years 2014 to 2017, uh, the federal government was going to pay for 100% of the Medicaid expansion population. Then starting in 2018, this year, the states were going to have to pay, uh, a portion of it. And then that amount was going to increase up until it was ten percent of the of the amount of those uh, those expanded. So it was going to be capped at ten percent. So ultimately, ninety percent of expanding the Medicaid rolls would be paid for by the federal government. Initially, one hundred percent. Eventually, ninety percent. But that's it. It would end there. Yes, but uh, that's not being completely fair. So the answer is yes. That is absolutely true. But it's not being completely fair because at the end of the day. The states don't pay 100% of their Medicaid. They only pay, New York pays 50%, and it varies state by state. Uh, the, the states with the lowest per capita income maybe pay 25% of their uh, state Medicaid. So the states, do, the federal government does not pay for 100% of, uh, of Medicaid. The states, it is, a, it is a mix of state and federal money that goes into it. So in New York, it's 50-50. The unexpanded Medicaid. Yes, You're referring to standard okay. standard Medicaid is a fifty fifty uh, split okay. in New York, and uh, in some of the like Alabama, I think is twenty five percent state money and seventy five percent federal money. Okay, and the other issue that's been in the news recently is with the new tax law, right? With the new tax law, they got rid of the individual mandate. They did. So that was a big coup. That was going to be the end of the Affordable Care Act. We say everything's going to be the end of the Affordable Care Act. Right, and so. Just explain what that was and then what has happened so far. So nothing's happened so far, but... Uh, well, no, what, what, like, so they got rid of the individual mandate. Yeah. Just so, ex explain that in sure. a little more detail. So the individual mandate is a, basically a tax law that says that if you do not have health insurance coverage or, or you're missing health insurance coverage for more than three months during the year, that you have to pay a tax. And the amount of that tax is... Uh, I believe it's six hundred and ninety-five dollars, or the greater of six hundred and ninety-five dollars, or two point five percent of your income. Now, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, two point five percent of your income is twenty-five hundred dollars a year, right? That's the amount of the individual mandate, RIP. Um, that is actually still in effect. It was in effect 2014, 15, 16, 17, and is still in effect for 2018 but is not in effect for 2019. And the purpose of it was to, to keep young, healthy people in the population, to give them a, a stick, to hit them with a stick to say, you better be in, otherwise we're going to tax you. 
Um, and so the question is, what's going to happen to the risk pools? What's going to happen to premiums for the people that stay in? Because the uh, guess of actuaries and economists is if you're young and healthy, you're 22 years old, and you're facing a decision of, I could pay $400 a month for premiums, uh, or I could not pay $400 a month for premiums and roll the dice, most of them are going to win that dice roll. And so they're not. many of them are not going to pay $400 a month for premiums. Now, if you add tack on, oh, if you don't pay $400 a month for premiums, I'm going to get out of tax. And you know what you get for that tax? You get nothing. You get nothing for that tax, right? So you pay the tax and you don't get health insurance, then a lot it's going to push a lot of people into the insurance market. Now, the question is whether people are going to flock out of the uh of the insurance market, whether they're going to flock out of the exchanges as a result of the um, Affordable Care Act no longer requiring you to have uh, coverage. Now, I don't think it will. Congressional Budget Office would disagree with me. Uh, they think there's going to be 4 million people, fewer people insured next year, all the way up to 10 or 12 million people 10 years out. So what was the tax for those people <clears throat> right now? Right, so those people that are going to fall off the rolls potentially. They'd pay two point five percent of their income. Right now, they're at two point five dollars. Right now, they're at two point five percent. Yes. Okay, so it escalated to that point, and that was it. Yeah, first year it was like one percent, then it went to two percent, then it went to two point five percent of their of their income. Okay, so the question is whether these people were just not going to buy insurance anyway. You know, how many of those people just never bought insurance to begin with? Um, and we're just paying the tax, maybe not even realizing that it was going to happen to them, maybe not even realizing um, that that was something that they needed to do. And what percent of people are just people who want to have health insurance because they want to do the responsible thing? And then there's all those people in between that are going to make the informed, calculated decision. Um, yeah. And I tend to think that there are not that many people that are going to sit there and calculate how much it costs, the risks, the benefits. They're just going to be the type of person to buy health insurance or they're not going to be the person, the type of person yeah. to buy health insurance. And it depends in large part on how much their mother yells at them. To be honest, you hear that tons is like, oh, my mom reminded me that I have to go buy health insurance, right? Because a lot of these people are 20 to 30, you know, in the 20 to 30 group. And more and more of them are living at home for longer periods of time. Yeah. Although, you know, one thing that the Affordable Care Act did, the, the single most popular provision of the Affordable Care Act was the expansion of coverage till you're, that you can stay on your parents' plan until you're 26. Yeah. Cost the plans very little. Uh, parents were happy. The kids were happy. It was like a win-win for everybody. Well, wonderful. Is there uh, maybe one more point that you want to add before we wrap this up, something that we didn't cover that you think it's important for people to know or a common thing that people misunderstand? Yeah. Uh, Mom and dad love me more. It's, it's true. I'm hoping this podcast wins them over. Love you, Mom. Well, thanks a lot for coming and taking the time to talk to me. Um, he is going to be back on the show because I know where he lives. And uh, if you do have questions, please post any comments on the Facebook page so that the next time he is available, we can circle back and uh, clarify anything, either regarding the Affordable Care Act or health economics in general. Well, Adam, this has been very informative. Thanks a lot for your time. It's been a pleasure, Brad. This was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review if you have something nice to say. You can also visit us on Facebook. Search Physician's Guide to Doctoring.